0: Good afternoon, baseball fans, and welcome to episode 39 of Sports Talk with Rags, as today we have longtime broadcaster of the Cincinnati Reds, Marty Brenneman, and also uh, a local here from Portsmouth, a Wilson High School alum. How are you doing, Marty? I'm doing well, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Oh, sure. No problem. Appreciate your time. So, hey, let's uh, let's start here from the... From the beginning, so uh, you uh, grew up in Portsmouth Mm -hmm. and graduated from uh, Wilson High School, huh?
1: I did. I was born in Portsmouth and uh, went to all the secondary schools there as a youngster and then went to uh, Woodrow Wilson High School and graduated from there in 1960. Um, Had a great four-year stay at Wilson which uh, unfortunately the building no longer even exists where it was or anything relating to it. Uh, But uh, I had a great high school uh, career and still stay in touch with uh, a number of people
0: that I uh, graduated with. Yes. I know that I uh, have been involved in the Portsmouth sports club here in the last few years. And I know that Bucky, Bucky Dotson and and a couple others here uh, know, Long-time friendships with you. So, but uh, so from uh, from Wilson, you go on to you go on to college, and then you uh, come back here to the Norfolk area and uh, and broadcast for the Virginia Squires and the Tidewater Tides. And the Virginia Squires certainly had uh, Dr. J and George Gervin. Definitely uh, great basketball here in Norfolk.
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was working at a, a thousand watt radio station in North Carolina in Salisbury, and uh, the the Squires, uh, they had been the Washington Caps, and they were based in D.C. and the owner of the franchise and a lawyer in the Washington Baltimore area by the name of Earl Foreman, uh, decided to move the franchise and make it a regional team and moved it into Virginia and with a home base in Norfolk, and they were looking for announcer with local ties and uh they found out about me through my dad who, who was manager of a pet milk carry there uh, uh a a, a long time friend of mine billy Skeeter, who was a great football player at wilson when they won the state championship way back in 1954 he was a quarterback and he was a salesman for uh WTKR radio and uh he was keeping track of me and Asked my dad, you know, would I have any interest in the job? My dad contacted me. I did. I applied for it and fortunately got it and then moved to Virginia Beach and um, did the Squires and came in at a time when uh, they had drafted Charlie Scott out of the University of North Carolina. And Charlie was a great player. And then a year later, Julius Irving came in and um, then George Gerben after that. I was very fortunate to be around. Uh, a franchise that had uh, three tremendously talented players and really got caught up in in the excitement of having a a pro franchise as successful on the floor as that team was. And then out of that, I got a chance to do the Tidewater Tides uh, under Dave Rosenfield, God rest his soul. And I uh, did their games for three years, and I uh, did one year William & Mary football and did one year Virginia Tech football. Oh, okay. And then, of course, this job came open, and I fortunately was able to get that and then left Norfolk in uh, at the end of January in 1974. Okay. And my first day on the job in Cincinnati was February 1, 1974.
0: Right, right yes, and it was uh, definitely a long um long, long career there with the Cincinnati Reds. But when you uh but when you went to Cincinnati, I mean it was uh it's right in the middle of the uh of the big big red machine. They were definitely uh on the up and up there in the uh early seventies with playoff appearances and then uh seventy five and seventy six uh ended up winning the winning the world back to back titles.
1: Yeah, my timing was very good. I, uh, you know, when I came, they had already had some success having appeared in uh, a couple of World Series, but having not won one. And then I came in, in uh, 74, my first year, they fell behind, I think, I don't know, 12 and a half or 13 games behind the Dodgers uh, during that season then almost caught them in September to fall back, and LA went on to in the postseason as the winners of the division and then the pennant, and then in '75, uh, you know, the Reds beat the Red Sox in the World Series and and seven games, and then the next year they swept the New York Yankees in '76. And I uh, I was very fortunate to be around those teams: Bench and Rose and Morgan and Perez and Concepcion and Foster and Griffey and Geronimo, and uh, and. Uh, developed great friendships with two of those guys on that team uh pete rose who i stayed in contact with all the time now and and joe morgan god rest his soul, passed away uh last november and they were they were the two guys that i've been closest to in all the years i've been involved in the game here in cincinnati um but, but i was very fortunate to be a part of that i have often said that Uh, When I went to the broadcaster's wing of the Hall of Fame in in 2000, that the single biggest thing in my favor was just to have been associated uh, with that team and being involved in the broadcast of the 75 and the 76 World Series. And um, I I look back upon those years with great memory because it was not a question. Some people will tell you that's the best baseball team in the history of the sport. Uh, those who won't concede that nevertheless will concede that that team probably is one of the top two or three
0: teams of the history of baseball right. right yes and uh they um they definitely uh it's like a like a who's who there of uh of baseball uh players there during the seventies with the with the Cincinnati Reds but uh but then in the then in the eighties i mean uh you know, some uh, some accomplishments that you got the privilege of of announcing. September 8, 19, 1985, the Padres were in town and uh, you got to call uh, Pete Rose breaking Ty Cobb's hit record.
1: Yeah, you know, it was an interesting thing because, you know, sometimes things happen that are unexpected. There are records that are set that that nobody has any knowledge of or any expectation of when they go to a ballpark on a, on a given night uh, in, in a situation like what Pete accomplished, we all knew he was going to do it. It was just a question of when it was going to happen. Um, and so I, I was fortunate to be on the mic when he, he got the hit that night off of Eric Chow at Riverfront Stadium to uh, break Ty Cobb's record. And, and, you know, it was just one of those events that, You're a part of that. As I look back on it, I don't believe that that record will ever be broken. Right. Um, It's one of those unreachable records simply because it's a different game that we watch today and guys don't play as long now as they did then. Uh, Pete has a great line when somebody asks him, you know, can anybody think there's anybody out there that could possibly break your record. And Pete would say, "Well, you know, there's some guys out there with ability, but he said they're going to have to get in excess of 200 hits for 20 years in a row right. Right, to even have a shot at it." Well, when you put it in that perspective, uh, it pretty much uh, points to the fact that there will be no one who will ever break the record. So I, I was privileged to uh, have the call on on that hit, and it was a it was an incredibly unforgettable night at
0: uh, Riverfront Stadium. Right. Yes, and then uh, and then just about uh, a little bit uh, three three years after that, not three years to the to the day, but uh, uh, September sixteenth, nineteen eighty eight. One of the uh, one of the great left-handed pitchers there for the Reds in the eighties. I mean, uh, Tom Tom Browning's uh, perfect game.
1: Yeah, well, that's the kind of thing that you don't expect, you Mm -hmm. know, and and even more so that night because there was a rain delay that caused the game to get started over two hours late. Uh, I don't think the game got underway until probably quarter after, 20 minutes after 10. Uh, It was against the Dodgers, and and when you start thinking about pitchers that decade, or in that era, who were candidates to pitch a no hitter, a perfect game, much less a no hitter, uh, Tom Brownie would not be a name that many people would even think about. Right. Uh, he was not a power pitcher. He <laughs> didn't throw over ninety miles an hour. He was a uh, uh, he was a breaking ball pitcher with great control and worked fast and and was simply uh, over the top that night. Uh, there was only, I think, one ball hit that. Uh, could have been a base hit or, or had it not been for a good defensive play and uh, the game he was matched up with a, a pitcher who later came to the Reds and who became a very good friend of Tom's and Tim Belcher Right. and uh, Belcher like Tom worked quickly he didn't work quite as fast as Tom did right. but worked quickly and that game it was a one nothing ball game and the only run that were scored in the game was as a result of a throwing error and um uh, it, it, the game lasted less than two hours um, it was a, just a brilliant performance he struck out Tracy Woodson uh, for the final out of the game the 27th consecutive out and, uh, that was at that time that was the second that I had brought past uh, the first had been thrown by Tom Sieber, uh in 1978 or 79 I forget what year it was against the Cardinals at, uh, at Riverfront and then Brownings was the second, and obviously the perfect game. And then since that time, and, uh, until I retired, I had four more no-hitters. So I had, I had six no-hitters wow. uh, that I broadcast, including the perfect game in my career.
0: Right. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, just something that uh, in, uh, fans and announcers and the teams know that something special is going on that night. No one – no one talks to the pitcher. Everyone leaves, l- leaves them alone. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's still a it's still an ongoing argument today relative to the broadcasters because there are still people that are um, superstitious enough that they don't think that the broadcaster should mention the fact that the pitcher has a no-hitter, and I've, I've never agreed with that. Right. Um, I had one when I was doing the Tidewater games, uh that was pitched against the tides uh, by joe necro who later became a buddy of mine After joe got to, after i got to the big leagues and and joe was uh, with the houston astros he pitched a seven inning perfect game um in toledo for the detroit tiger triple a club against the tides one day uh and i talked about that the entire game i i think we as broadcasters we have a certain obligation to let people know what's going on Um, I I don't believe that that we need to not talk about it out of a sense of of possibly jinxing, jinxing the pitcher. I've never felt that way. And, and, and so I talked about all the no-hitters that I ever broadcast. And, and even in Browning's no-hit, I, I talked about it uh, after every out from the seventh inning on. Uh, so, And I don't think I jinxed him that night, so I've never bought into that philosophy. I understand the players. That That's a different deal because you know they're in the dugout with him while the team is batting, and, and they pretty much stay clear of him. And nobody talked to him and
0: he's like an island to himself until the game is over. Yes. And then, and then the, the 1990 reds, uh, Lou Piniella was, was managing the club. And, uh, what a, what a season that that 1990 team had that, uh, went, made it to the world series, you know, when the Oakland A's were in their third trade world series and the, uh, The Reds uh, were on a mission and brought the brooms and won the 1990 World Series four straight games. Well, that's my favorite team of all the teams I've been associated with here in the uh, 46 years
1: I broadcast Reds baseball. Uh, because that was a team that nobody gave uh, right. <laughs> gave a, a a any thought at all to winning anything, right. not, not the division, right. uh, certainly not a pennant or a World Series, and um, the uh, season started late. Uh, because there had been a strike and it affected the early days of the season, so uh, baseball's powers had been, decided to just—they established a date when the play the play was going to start after the strike was over—and they simply simplified it by saying, "We'll just pick up the schedule where it where it would have been anyway." And as a result of that, uh, that season began for the Reds on the road, which is the only season that I was around, and even before I ever came, where the Reds opened the season on the road. Every year they opened at home because they're the oldest right. uh, professional franchise. And, and they opened in Houston that night, and uh, Barry Larkin tripled with the bases loaded in the 11th inning off of a, a guy by the name of Charlie Kerfel to win the game. And they never vacated uh, first uh, first place in the in the division. They, they became the first team since division play came into existence in 1969 to go wire to wire. Uh, it was a team led, of course, by a, a future Hall of Famer and Barry Larkin, and they had Eric Davis. Uh, they, they just had uh, Chris Sabo was a third baseman, and. Uh, they they have a lot of great talent on that club billy hatcher Lynn braggs and al morris and todd benzinger and mariano duncan and ronnie oster and joe oliver they they and then the pitching staff uh the outstanding rotation uh, because of tom browning was still around and they had Danny jackson uh say reho who was the anchor of the rotation and then they had the guys in the bullpen that became known as the nasty boys and rob dibble and and uh, Randy Myers and Norm Charlton and they beat the Pirates in six games in the league championship series and that was an outstanding team I thought the Pirates were a better team uh, with Bonds and Barry Bonilla and Andy Hans-like and very good pitching uh, then they played in the World Series in the Oakland A's which of course had Mark McGuire and Jose and, uh, Canseco and Carney Lansford and uh, Dave Henderson and people like that and the Reds just disposed of the of the A's in four straight games to become world champions. And it was a team that had incredible uh, chemistry. I've often felt that there was, it's more important, that the chemistry element is the most important in baseball because of the number of games you play and the months, seven months, including spring training, that you're with uh, your teammates. And, and they had great, great chemistry. Uh, and it transcended... All uh, ethnicity, uh, all racial lines, uh, guys got to get got got along famously well, and and Panella was an outstanding manager. Uh, he was loud and bombastic and profane, and uh, he was exactly what that team needed. And, and And so it was an unforgettable year for me. I, I hated to
0: see it end, and uh, I loved every one of the guys on that ball club. Right. Yes, and. Uh... And then in the uh early 2000s you you brought up during the uh during the 70s the big red machine one of the outfielders was Ken Griffey senior and there in 2000 he was one of the coaches and Griffey junior uh came came back home to Cincinnati to play for his hometown team and as his dad was was one of the coaches so uh talk about seeing uh Griffey Sr. and Griffey Jr. there, reunited in Cincinnati there in the early 2000s?
1: Well, it, unfortunately, it was, it was not nearly as successful as I think we all felt it would be. Um, I thought he was the greatest player of the decade of the 90s when he was with Seattle, more so than than Bonds, because Bonds, you know, he did the performance-enhancing drugs Uh, that came out later and I think Junior did it clean without any help at all other than his God-given talent. Uh, When he came here, he was hurt a lot. Uh, I think out of the 10 years he was in Cincinnati, I think there were only two years in which he was able to avoid any kind of debilitating injury. And so, unfortunately, the fans in Cincinnati during that period really did not see the Ken Griffey Jr. that the fans in Seattle saw in the period of years before. But uh, it was fun to watch him when he was healthy. Uh, he was still a dominant player when he came here, when he had his health about him. And uh, to have the senior on the coaching staff part of the time that Junior was here uh, was really a, an added plus. And Ken Griffey Sr. is one of my favorite players of all time and uh, as a person. And I know it was a thrill for him, and and uh, from a broadcast perspective, it was a thrill for me because I got the chance to broadcast his 500th home run, which he hit uh, in St. Louis, and then his 600th home run, which he hit down in Miami. So it, it was a thrill for me to uh, having been around him, especially so because he I I've known Junior since he was a kid, no right. higher than. Than your knee, right. uh, as a and then grow gradually, growing up and then becoming a young man playing high school uh, baseball with with great distinction at Moeller High School here in Cincinnati, and uh, so it, it was a big thrill to have him. Moment, I know there are a lot of people in Cincinnati that feel the same way, even today.
0: Right. Yes, and as we uh, as we wrap up, uh, I know in uh, '99 you got inducted into the Virginia Sports. Hall of Fame, and one of the earlier episodes that I had on uh, Bob Bob Rathbun was uh, was on one of my podcasts. I know that he uh, he was he was also in the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. So talk about uh, being inducted into the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. That at that time it was in downtown Portsmouth. It's now moved to Virginia Beach. But uh, talk about. Uh, being inducted into hall of fame where where you grew up
1: well it was a huge thrill for me because uh for just the reason you stated i the fact that i was born and raised in portsmouth and went to school there and and still know uh, a lot of people in in the tidewater area and to uh have been looked upon in the manner in which they looked upon my career and uh, to the extent that they put me into the hall of fame and Uh, it's always fun to come back home. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm going into the uh, Reds Hall of Fame in in August, in late August, and and that's going to be a a memorable event also. But, uh, you know, going into your own State Hall of Fame is a big deal, And, and especially so for me because Eddie Webb at the time was running uh, the hall of fame right. I'd known Eddie forever because his dad uh, Paul oh. Webb uh, who uh, was a great coach at Old Dominion but before that was a great coach at Randolph-Macon which is where I started my college okay. uh, years before transferring to Chapel Hill so i have known Paul Webb forever and uh, knew Eddie as his boy and uh, thought the world of Eddie Webb when he ran the hall of fame and so it was a big deal for me it was it was um, it was an event that
0: you know, as as a young guy in the business, you only dream of maybe one day being good enough at your chosen profession to go into your state hall of fame. Right. Yes, and uh, I know that. Uh, let's see, my brother played high school baseball, college college baseball, and uh, I know that uh, my dad. Um, we lived in New York in the early '80s, and my dad took my brother and I to. Yankee and Mets game, so we grew up around the game of baseball, and from the mid-80s, you know, I wanted to become a broadcaster, so uh, I definitely looked up to you and your son, and Joe and Jack Buck, and uh, Harry and Skip, and then Chip Carey, so, you know, there's there's three families that had uh, multiple uh, generations in the broadcast. Well, they gave it more than that, Harry Cowles. Yeah, that's right. Harry and Todd, boys of the Phillies and and his son, Todd, yes.
1: uh, there are a number of them that uh, have been fortunate enough to follow in their dad's footsteps and, and do so with, with success, yeah. uh, you know, and getting to a certain high level in the business themselves. And it's almost like a fraternity. I mean, Chip, Chip Carey is almost like a second son to me. Right. Uh, I still stay in touch with him and, Uh, his dad Skip was a dear friend of mine and Harry was great to Tom when Tom worked for 10 years as a broadcaster with the Chicago Cubs Um, so it's a bunch of good people they really are all the guys that have had sons that go into the business after them uh, were first class people and and it's kind
0: of a thing that you're proud of when you look back on it Right. and uh, Marty I know that uh, you retired in 2019 and then the last fifteen, sixteen months, we've been, uh, you know, experiencing the the pandemic. But uh, but how how's retirement? Do you still go to uh, Reds games and uh, and follow the team? I follow the team. I don't go to
1: games. I don't okay. go to too many games. Okay. I uh, you know, I, it's a it's a chapter in my life that I've turned the page on. Um, i I don't quite honestly mark I don't miss the game I don't like the way the game is being played today. It's all about home runs and strikeouts and walks and um, you don't see teams hitting and running the stolen base is almost gone completely right uh, it's all about guys throwing ninety five to hundred miles an hour and so I'm not a big fan of the way the game is played certainly I stay up on what's going on with this Reds ball club but uh, i've been to one game all season long i don't know that i'll even go back and see any more after that maybe maybe a two or three more down the road but um i'm retired and i i, I chose to retire at a time when my health was good um, i'll be 79 years old in july and, uh, i'm not going with the healthiest 79 year old that i know and i uh, walk five miles a day stay in shape and 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 my wife and I do quite a bit of traveling both uh, here and abroad and uh, now that the gates are pretty much opened and and the smart people are the ones that have gotten inoculated with a shot um, uh, we go where we want to go we do what we want to do and I don't really give it a second thought anymore i uh, i'm I'm thrilled enough that I came through you know without contracting uh, the virus and have had the shots and and you know I look forward to uh, hopefully many more years of a successful retirement uh, and that's really all you can ask for
0: right and uh marty i i appreciate your your wife uh amanda replying to a private message on facebook and lining lining this up thanks thanks again for being for being on my podcast
1: well, it's my pleasure, Mark. I uh, I salute what you're doing. You've had some good folks on this show, and and hopefully you'll be successful with even more to come.
0: Well, well, thank you, and uh, have a have a good day, and uh, and and appreciate appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much. Same here. All
0: right, all right, listeners. So uh, that's hey,
1: what are you, what, what, uh, what are you doing at the shipyard?
0: So uh, what I do at the shipyard is I started